Chapter Twenty Seven of Our Vanishing Wildlife. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah Jennings. Our Vanishing Wildlife by William T. Hornaday. Chapter Twenty Seven: How to Make a New Game Law. The Line of Action. In the face of a calamity. The saving of life and property and the check of fire and flood depends upon good judgment and quick action at the critical moment. In emergencies, the slow and academic method will not serve. It is the run, the jump, the shortcut, and the violent method that saves life. If a woman is drowning, the sensible man does not wait for an introduction to her, nor does he run to an acquaintance to borrow his boat or stop to put on a collar and necktie. He seizes the first boat that he can find and breaks its lock and chain if necessary, or failing that he plunges in without one. When he reaches the imperiled party, he doesn't say, "Will you kindly let me save you?" He seizes her by the hair and tries to keep her head above water without ceremony. That is today the condition and the treatment necessary regarding our remnant of wild life. We are compelled to act quickly, directly, and even violently at times. If we save anything worth while, there is no time to depend upon the academic education of the public by the seductive illustrated lecture on birds or the article about the habits of mammals. Those methods are well enough in their places, but we must not depend upon them in emergencies like the present, for they do not pass laws or arrest lawbreakers. Give the public all of that material that you can supply. And the more the better. But for heaven's sake, do not depend upon the spread of bird lore education to stop the work of the game hogs. If you do, all the wildlife will be destroyed while the educational work is going on. Often you can educate a gunner and make him a protectionist, but you can never do it by showing him pictures of birds. He needs strong reasoning and exhortation, not bird lore. Today it is necessary to employ the most direct, forceful, and at times even rude methods. Where slaughtering cannot be stopped by moral suasion, it must be stopped with a hickory club. The thing to do is to get results and get them quickly before it is too late. If the business section of a town is burning down, no one goes into the suburbs to lecture on architecture or exhibit pictures of fire apparatus. The rush is for water, fire engines, red-blooded men, and dynamite. When the birds all around you are being shot to death by poachers who fear not God nor regard man, and you need help to stop it on the instant, run to your neighbor's house and ring his bell. If he fails to hear the bell, pound on his door until you jar the whole house. When he comes down half dressed, blinking and rubbing his eyes, shout at him, "Come out! Your birds are all being shot to pieces." Are they? He will say. But what can I do about it? I can't help it. I'm no game warden. Put on your clothes, get your shotgun, and come out and drive off the killing gang. But what good will that do? They will come back again. Not if we do our duty. We must have them arrested and appear against them in court. But says the sleepy citizen, that won't do much good. The laws are not strict enough, and besides, they are not well enforced, even as they are. Then let's make it our business to see that the present laws are enforced, and go to our members of the legislature and have them pass some stronger laws. And this brings me to a very important subject: how to pass a new law. 
we venture to say that the average citizen little realizes how possible it is to secure the passage of a law that is clearly necessary for the better protection of wild life and forests. Because of this, and of the necessity for exact knowledge, I shall here set down specific instructions on this subject. The Personal Equation One determined man can secure the passage of a good law, provided he is reasonably intelligent and sufficiently determined. The man who starts a movement must make up his mind to follow it up, direct its fortunes, stay with it when the storms of opposition beat upon it, and never give up until it is signed by the governor. He must be willing to sacrifice his personal convenience, many of his pleasures, and work when his friends are asleep or pleasuring. In working for the protection of wild life there is one mighty and unfailing source of consolation. It is this. Your cause always gains in strength, and the cause of the destroyers always loses strength. The choice of a cause. Be broad-minded. Do not rush to the legislature with a demand for a law to permit the taking of bullheads with June bugs in the creeks of your township, or to give your county a specially early open season on quail in order that your boy may try his new gun before he goes back to college. Don't propose any local legislation. For in progressive states, local game legislation is coming strongly into disfavor, just as it should. Legislate for your whole state, and nothing less. Do not bother your legislature with a trivial bill. Choose a cause that is worthwhile to grown men, and it shall be well with you. It takes no more time to pass a large bill than a small one, and big men prefer to be identified with big measures. Before you have a bill drawn, advise with men whose opinions are worth having. If the end you have in mind is a great and good one, go ahead, whether you secure support in advance or not. If the needs of the hour clearly demand the measure, go ahead, even though you start absolutely alone. A good measure never goes far without attracting company. Drafting a bill. As a rule, the members of a legislative body do not have time to draft bills on subjects that are new or strange to them. A short bill is easily prepared by your own representative, but a lengthy bill covering a serious reform is a different matter. Hire a lawyer to draft the bill for you. A really good lawyer will not charge much for drafting a bill that is to benefit the public, and grind no private acts, but if the bill is long and requires long study, even the good citizen must charge something. Your bill must fully recognize existing laws. It must be either prohibitory or permissive, which means that it can say what shall not be done, or else that which may be done according to law, all other acts being forbidden. Your lawyer must decide which form is best. For my part, I greatly prefer the prohibitive form, as being the stronger and more impressive of the two. I think it is the province of the law to forbid the destruction of wildlife and forests, under penalties. Penalties. Every law should provide a penalty for its infringement. But the penalty should not be out of all proportion to the offense. It is just as unwise to impose a fine of one dollar for killing songbirds for food, as it is to provide a fine of three hundred dollars. A fine that is too small fails to impress the prisoner, and it begets contempt for the law in the courts. A fine that is altogether too high is apt to be set aside by the court as excessive. In my opinion, the best fines for wildlife slaughter would be as follows. Shooting, netting, or trapping songbirds or other non-game birds. Each bird, 5 to $25. Killing game birds out of season. Each bird, 10 to $50. 
Selling game contrary to law. Each offense, $100 to $200. Dynamiting fish, $100 to $200. Saning or netting game fishes, $50 to $200. Shooting birds with unfair weapons, $10 to $100. Killing an egret, Carolina parakeet, or whooping crane, $100 to $200. Killing a mountain sheep or antelope anywhere in the U.S., $500. Killing an elk, contrary to law, $50. Killing a female deer or fawn without horns, each offense, $50. Trapping a grizzly bear for its skin, $100. For killing a man by mistake, the fine should be $500 payable in five annual installments to the court for the family of the victim. Whenever fines are not paid, the convicted party should be sentenced to imprisonment at hard labor at the rate of one half day for each dollar of the fine imposed, and a sentence at hard labor should be the first option of the court. Many a rich and reckless poacher snaps his fingers at fines, but a sentence to hard labor would strike terror to the heart of the most brazen of them. To all such men, labor is the twin terror to death. The Introduction of a Bill much wisdom is called for in the selection of legislative champions for wildlife bills. It is possible to state here only the leading principles involved. Of course it is best to look for an introducer within the political party that is in the majority. A man who has many important bills on his hands is bound to give his best attention to his own pet measures, and it is best to choose a man who is not already overloaded. If a man has a host of enemies, pass him by. By all means, choose a man whose high character and good name will be a tower of strength to your cause, and if necessary, wait for him to make up his mind. Mr. Lawrence W. Trowbridge waited three long and anxious weeks in the hope that Honorable George A. Blovelt would finally consent to champion the Blaine Bill in the New York Assembly. At last Mr. Blovelt consented to take it up, and the time spent in waiting for his decision was a grand investment. He was the man of all men to pilot that bill through the assembly. Very often the quiet man of a legislative body is a good man to champion a new and drastic measure. The quiet man who makes up his mind to take hold of a hard bill to pass often astonishes the natives by his ability to get results. Representative John F. Lacey of Iowa made his name a household word all over the United States by the quiet, steady, tireless, and finally resistless energy with which for three long years in Congress he worked for the Lacey Bird Bill. For years his colleagues laughed at him and cheerfully voted down his bill, but he persisted. His cause steadily gained in strength, and his final triumph laid the axe at the root of a thousand crimes against wildlife throughout the length and breadth of this land. He rendered the people of America a service that entitles him to our everlasting gratitude and remembrance. After the introduction of a bill. As soon as a bill is introduced, it is referred to a committee to be examined and reported upon. If there is opposition, and to every bill that really does something worthwhile, there always is opposition, then there is a hearing. The committee appoints a day when the friends and foes of the bill assemble and express their views. The week preceding a hearing is your busy week. You must plan your campaign down to the smallest details. Pick the men whom you wish to have speak, for ten minutes each, on the various parts of your bill, and divide the topics and the time between them. Call upon the friends of the bill in various portions of the state to attend and say something. Go up with a strong body of fine men. 
have as many organizations represented as you possibly can. The organizations represent the great mass of people, and the voters also. When you reach the hearing, hand to your bill's champion, who will be floor manager for your side, a clear and concise list of your speakers, carefully arranged, and stating who's who. That being done, you have only to fill your own ten minutes, and afterward enjoy the occasion. THE VALUE OF ACCURACY It is unnecessary to say, in working for a bill, always be sure of your facts. Never let your opponents catch you tripping in accuracy of statement. If you make one serious error, your enemies will turn it against you to the utmost. Better understate facts than overstate them. This shrewd old world quickly recognizes the careful, conservative man whose testimony is so true and so rock-founded that no assaults can shake it. Legislators are quick to rely on the words and opinions of the man who can safely be trusted. If your enemies try to overwhelm you with extravagant statements that are unfair to your cause, the chances are that the men who judge between you will recognize them by their earmarks and discount them accordingly. Work with Members Sometimes a subject that is put before a legislative body is so new, and the thing proposed is so drastic, it becomes necessary to take measures to place a great many facts before each member of the body. Under such circumstances, the member naturally desires to be shown. The cleanest and finest campaigning for a reform measure is that in which both sides deal with facts, rather than personal importunities. With a good cause in hand, it is a pleasure to prepare concise statements of facts and conditions from which a legislator may draw logical conclusions. Whenever a bill can be won through in that way, game protection work becomes a delight. In all important new measures affecting the rights and the property of the whole people of a state, the conscientious legislator wishes to know how the people feel about it. When you tell him that the wildlife belongs to the whole people of the state, and this bill is in their interest, he needs to know for certain that your proposition is true. Sometimes there is only one way in which he can be fully convinced, and that is by the people of his district. Then it becomes necessary to send out a general alarm, and call upon the people to write to their representatives and express their views. Give them, in printed matter, the latest facts in the case. Forecast the future as you think it should be forecast. Then demand that the men and women who are interested do write to their senators and assemblymen, and express their views in their own way. Let there be no machine letters sent out already for signature, for such letters are a waste of effort, and belong in the waste baskets to which they are quickly consigned. The members of legislative bodies hate them, and rightly too. They want to hear from men who can think for themselves, give reasons of their own, and express their desires in their own way. The Press and the Newspapers it is impossible to overstate the influence of the newspapers and the periodical press in general in the protection of wildlife. But for their sympathy, their support, and their independent assaults upon the army of destruction, our game species would nearly all of them have been annihilated long ago. Editors are sympathetic and responsive good citizens, as keenly sensitive regarding their duties as any of the rest of us are, and from the earliest times of protection they have been on the firing line, helping to beat back the destroyers. It is indeed a rare sight to see an editor giving aid, comfort, or advice to the enemy. I cannot recall more than a score of articles that I have seen or heard of during thirty years in this field that opposed the cause of wildlife protection. At this moment, for instance, I bear in particularly grateful remembrance the active campaign work of the following newspapers. 
The New York Times, The New York Tribune, The New York Herald, The New York Globe, The New York Mail and Express, The New York World, The New York Sun, The Springfield, Massachusetts Republican, The Chicago Interocean, The San Francisco Call, The Rochester Union and Advertiser, The Victoria Colonist, The Brooklyn Standard Union, The New York Evening Post, The New York Press, The Buffalo News, the Minneapolis Journal, the Pittsburgh Index Appeal, the St. Louis Globe Democrat, the Philadelphia North American, the Utica Observer, the Washington Star. These magazines have done good service in the cause, and some of them have spent many years on the firing line. Forest and Stream, the American Field, Field and Stream, Recreation Old and New, Rod and Gun in Canada, In the Open, Sports a Field, Western Field, Outdoor Life, Shields Magazine, Sportsman's Review, Outing, Collier's Weekly, The Independent, Country Life, Outdoor World, Bird Lore. In campaigning, always appeal for the help of the newspapers. If there are no private axes to grind, they help generously. The weekly journals are of value but the monthlies are printed so long in advance of their dates of issue that they seldom move fast enough to keep abreast of the procession. Their mechanical limitations are many and serious. Every newspaper likes exclusive news, letters, and articles. On that basis, they will print about all the live matter you can furnish, but at the same time the important news of the campaign must be sent to the press broadcast, in the form of printed slips, all ready for the foreman. Many of these are never used, but the others are, and it pays. The news in every slip must be vouched for by the sender, or it will not be used. Often it will appear as a letter signed by the sender, which is all right, only the news is most effective when printed without a signature. Do not count on the Associated Press, because its peculiar demands render it almost impossible for it to be utilized in game protection work. How to Meet Opposition there is no rule for the handling of opposition that is fair and open. For opposition that is unfair and underhanded, there is one powerful weapon, publicity. The American people love fair play, and there is nothing so fatal to an unfair fighter as a searchlight turned full on him without fear and without mercy. If it is reliably and persistently reported that some citizen who ought to be on the right side has for some dark reason become active on the wrong side, Print the reports in a large newspaper, and ask him publicly if they are true. If the reports are false, he can quickly come out in a letter and say so, and end the matter. If they are true, the public will soon know it, and act accordingly. Eternal Vigilance The progress of a bill must be watched by some competent person from day to day, and finally from hour to hour. I know one bill that was saved from defeat only because its promoter dragged it, almost by force, out of the hands of a tardy clerk, and accompanied it in person to the Senate, where it was passed in the last hour of a session. A bill should not be left to a long slumber in the drawer of a committee. Such delays nearly always are dangerous. Signing the Bill The promoter of a great measure always seeks the sympathy of the chief executive early in the day, but he should not make the diplomatic error of trying to exact promises or pledges in advance. Good judges do not give away their decisions in advance. Because a chief executive remarks after a bill has been sent to him for signing that he cannot approve it, it is no reason to give up in despair. 
Many an executive approval has been snatched at the last moment, as a brand from the burning. Ask for a hearing before the bill is acted upon. At the hearing, and before it, and after, the people who wish the bill to become a law must express themselves, by letter, by telegram, and by appeal in person. If the governor becomes convinced that an overwhelming majority of his people desire him to sign the bill, he will sign it, even though personally he is opposed to it. The hallmark of a good governor is a spirit of obedience to the will of the great majority. Not until your bill has been signed by the governor are you ready to go home with a quiet mind, take off your armor, and put your ear to the telephone while you hear someone say as your only reward, Well done, good and faithful servant. As to credit. Do not count upon receiving any credit for what you do in the cause of game protection outside the narrow circle of your own family and your nearest friends. This is a busy world, and the human mind flits like a restless bird from one subject to another. The men who win campaigns are forgotten by the general public. In a few hours, there is nothing more fickle or more fleeting than the bubble called popular applause. Judging by the experiences of great men, I should say that it has no substance whatever. The most valuable reward of the man who fights in a great cause and helps to win victories is the profound satisfaction that comes to every good citizen who bravely does his whole duty, and leaves the world better than he found it, without the slightest thought of gallery applause. End of chapter 27